0: Our fourth panel is about memory. The first paper is by Professor Catherine Merrydale of Queen Mary College, University of London. It's entitled Listening for 20 Years. Jonathan wanted me to talk informally to connect really with something that Alexandra Vactor, who is a PhD student working with me, was going to say. And Alexandra was going to give you the nuts and bolts, having just come back from St. Petersburg, and I was going to talk about. Uh, well, if she's doing nuts and bolts, I wasn't quite sure. But what I was going to do is give you the experience of much longer perspective of working on oral history in Russia, which is something that a lot of us get to do at some point or another in our careers. And that is exactly what I'm still going to do. I've been doing oral history in Russia, after all, for about 20 years. When I first went there, the Soviet Union had only just collapsed. Well, when I first went there to do oral history, I first went there in 1983, but as a professional historian, about 1992. The Soviet Union had just collapsed. People were just getting used to the idea of Russia. They were still getting used to their history. And what's more, the internet virtually didn't exist in Russia. Television history didn't really exist. So the kinds of conversation that I could have in 1992 through four were very different from the kinds that you will have now. And I'm not just telling you that because it's fun to reminisce. My more serious point is that if you're going to do oral history and think about memory, you're actually talking to people who live in the present whose engagement is with moving time now rather than moving time then. So they will have changed, and the kinds of answers that you will get will be framed in a very different kind of language from what they would have been 10, 20 years ago. The boundaries that keep Russians separate from us have been breaking up a bit lately, but there are still quite a few of them. And let me start with a story which some of you will have heard if you were in Glasgow, but those of you who haven't might still enjoy it. Some years ago, when I was a graduate student, or just coming out of being a graduate student myself, I went to a conference in Cambridge on trauma and memory. And there was a highly annoying American psychoanalyst at this conference, this big, bald, big file, huge glasses, (laughs) who used to follow me around from room to room, saying, you must come to my trauma center. my Thomas said, and I got to the point where you know this was like some scene from a Peter Sellers movie he'd pop up wherever I was. And on the last day of the conference, at 6.30 in the morning, I set off to go swimming in the Cambridge University swimming pool. And he popped out of his room. You must come and talk about my Thomas. And I'm, I'm going swimming. I'm going swimming. Right? So off I went. I was in the pool, I'd done three lengths, and a pair of godly eyes <laughs> came out of the water. You talk about my trauma center and at this point I gave up. I actually (laughs) did talk about his trauma center and he was a psychoanalyst working with Holocaust survivors and I wanted to work on death and memory and trauma so we did in fact have quite a lot to say to each other. Now obviously it's a good story but I'm telling it for three reasons. First of all he was right and there are a number of things that you need to take on board without having to put up with the swimming pool experience that I can share with you in a much more kind of passive manner um, it is shocking to hear people talking about things like the gulag, about being shocked, about well, not them but their relatives about traumatic loss the second world war political repression it's shocking for them of course but you do need to remember it's also shocking for you and that's what this man wanted to tell me. He wanted to warn me that what I was doing would have an effect on me, way beyond what doing archival research will do. And that, I have to say, is absolutely true. It's also true that this kind of work is toxic for the narrator, the person you're interviewing, unless you are extremely careful. When I was in Ukraine in 1996 and 7, I was travelling around in the wake, as it were, of the Spielberg Foundation, which was doing interviews for the Spielberg collection of Holocaust narratives. And I found a large number of people refused to speak to me because of what had happened when the Spielberg team arrived and left, which was they would arrive, do an interview, and And people were left having nightmares. They were left feeling sick. One of them had a heart attack. People claimed their relatives had been traumatized all over again, and there was no support for them. So the other point to bear in mind is if you are asking people questions about things which are deeply troubling for them, you must think about what effect that is going to have on them. And you have no right to leave people as the Spielberg Foundation did. It's not research. It's something else which perhaps you can talk about. The second reason for telling you the story, though, is that he was, in fact, wrong. He believed that the whole of Soviet society would be in a state of post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's one of the things he wanted to tell me. You know, when you interview these people, they're going to be halfway crazy. You have to remember that. Well, it isn't the case. The Soviet Union and Russia are not the same as New York and New Haven, which is where he was based. People had different ways of coping, and part of the point of my oral history project at that stage was to find out what they were. They were radically different, actually, from the ones that I imagined. Now, at first, having listened very carefully to what he said, I believed I was going to hear trauma in the things people told me. I was going to find them suffering from nightmares, trying to hide things, having repetitive memory flashbacks, all that sort of thing. When they didn't tell me this, when they said, oh, no, no, I don't have nightmares, I thought, liar. You know, I know because I've read the books on post-traumatic stress. It's not the case. What you have to do is put aside everything you've been told about how Americans may respond to this or British people may respond to it and listen to what you're hearing from the Russians who came from a very different society in a very different time and had very different ways of dealing with whatever it was they're dealing with in the decades afterwards. And the third reason for telling you the story is that the picture has changed since the 1990s. There has been a huge amount of cultural exchange between Western Europe and North America and the former Soviet territories, precisely on questions of psychoanalysis and psychiatry. I recently had to assess a grant application from somebody who wanted to go and psychoanalyse the EVENC reindeer herders on the grounds that they needed to know more about their inner selves and post-traumatic stress. There is an enormous amount now of export of it's, it's, it's like a kind of you know, the export of capitalism, but we also have the export of psychological theory and psychiatry. So what I found in 1995 or six will not be the case in 2010, 11. And that's another thing to be aware of. Things change at all levels. Oral history is not about finding facts. I think we all know that. AJP Taylor said it was <laughs> listening to old men dribbling, didn't he? Um, It's not about going to find the old people who took part in big events and getting them to tell you the truth, very seldom. It's mainly about things like I've been describing, the shapes of memory, the way in which propaganda has shaped vocabulary and language. And that brings me on to the question of translation. When I was working in Russia the first time around on this kind of thing, I used to have to escape from my Russian language environment. I got very distressed by it and had to sort of retreat into English detective novels. And the other thing I retreated into was music. Well, I used to listen to a great deal of music. And it was one day listening to a Russian music radio station when I heard them talking about Gaiden. And I thought, oh my God, these Russians, they just don't understand it. It's Haydn, everybody knows that. who I was, of course, My pronunciation of Haydn and theirs, neither of us is pronouncing it as it would have been pronounced at the time by the man himself. We are all translating. And I started to take apart some of my assumptions about what the world is and to stop translating and start trying to live in Russian. And I know this sounds like a very big thing to expect of yourself, but I think you have to try to do that. To stop being a Brit listening to Russians and thinking, poor things, you know they've got this language problem, don't speak English, and start being a truly Russian listener. What that will do, of course, is it will mean that your Russian has to be very good, because you have to listen for the associations of words. You have to listen for the sounds. You have to listen, perhaps, for associations that no foreigner will know unless they talk to a native speaker which are associations with propaganda, maybe from the 1960s or 70s, associations with old movies. You know, Why has a person chosen that word? If you're struck by it, ask a native speaker because you may very well find that what you're getting is something that's full of suggestion, which you can only unpick if you really stick in the world of Russian, and don't try translating too quickly into the world you come from. Now, what do you take with you? I don't pay respondents, I never have. I know quite a lot of people do, especially if they're doing what you might call focus group type research. Incidentally, when I first went to Russia to do oral history in the 1990s, nobody had ever seen an oral historian, and they instantly sent me to market researchers because they assumed what I wanted was a focus group, you know, like you do with Mars bars or um, lager. You know, Let them sit in a circle and discuss what the implication of the word gulag is. Um, I don't pay them because I think it changes the nature of the interaction between you and I don't take cheap presents either but you will want to take something because the fundamental thing about this exchange between you and them is that they're giving you something which is incredibly valuable to you and for which you cannot pay $20 won't pay for it you know, a box of chocolates won't pay for it You have to think about this as something they're doing for you which is very generous and for which you actually have to be grateful in genuinely. It has to be a human exchange between you. So what do you take? Well, in your suitcase, I would suggest a couple of things. Pictures of your home and your family. They love that. They love to know that what you're doing is presenting yourself to them just as you want them to present themselves to you. And food and drink for the meeting. In the past, in the 90s, people were so hungry and so poor that that made a huge difference. It's less of a difference now, but it's still a cultural good manners to take packets of tea, packets of biscuits, whatever it is that you think will go down well. But um, the final piece of preparation, as I've already said, is to remember that you're not going to be in England. I have noticed certain interesting developments in oral history over the years because I also sit on a number of panels that look at research proposals. My favorite is the man who wanted the money included in his grant application for a handgun and ammunition before he went to the place he was planning to go, do not do this. (laughs) Right then. Mm -hmm. How do you pick your respondents? Again, looking at grant applications, I know what we all say. We all say we're going to do snowballing. We are going to do random uh, social sampling. We are going to use this, that, or the other method. The answer is, Russia is not Britain. Russia is not a place where you can simply control the exchange between yourself, trying to do oral history, and the society into which, in a hapless foreign way, you've suddenly dropped. You will find your respondents however they will present themselves to you. Now, you can do this, as they say in Russia, you may find the friends of friends. It's a very effective way of doing it. You may find respondents by going to organizations and getting them to help you. But a number of things will have to be borne in mind to sort of stop you getting really impatient. Most important is no Russian will make an arrangement to see you more than approximately 24 hours in advance. And quite often, they won't. Yeah, (laughs) They won't make an arrangement to see you more than about three hours in advance. Take a mobile phone and be aware that this is how things work. People will turn you down at the last minute for a number of reasons. One is they may genuinely think they're going to disappoint you. A lot of people feel, this person wants to come and interview me, and I have nothing to give them. My memories are not very important. They worry about how you'll judge the way they live or the place they live. They're very sensitive about this. Going into somebody's home is actually an enormous intrusion. So if you get apparent standoffishness, it's probably embarrassment and nerves, and there are ways around it. The obvious one is, to be quite honest, back and to say, I'm also embarrassed. It's it's really difficult. This is not an easy exchange. You're not the all-powerful researcher. Always the exchange has to be at a human level. These days I can't play that game because I'm too old and they know I'm not embarrassed and nervous. So what I do is I play on the fact that because I've been doing it for so long, I can speak like a Soviet. And we sit down together and we laugh about the old Soviet Union and the language it used. You know, I still know what a pathork was or, you know, where you had to go to the to the local Soviet and all that kind of thing, which children and young people don't. So older people find it quite fun to reminisce with somebody from abroad who who speaks the same language assume you've got there and you're sitting down and you've presented your Twining's tea and your custard creams and you've talked about why you're there your next job I'm afraid is to listen and you are going to listen for a very very long time (laughs) this is an oral culture this is a place where people speak and narrate as we have long ago forgotten how take spare batteries, you may be sitting in that apartment for five, six, the longest I've done is eight hours, while somebody talked and talked and talked. And you don't know when you're going to get the material you want, or what part of it is going to be important, and you cannot shut them up. You mustn't. It's not, perhaps, the most polite thing to do. As I keep saying, this is a human, not a scientific encounter. I would add that Russians will put you to shame with their hospitality. Again, you cannot pay for that. You simply have to accept it. You may have to eat three lunches on the same day. I can give you a couple of examples of people's generosity. I'm not sure how much time I've got left. One of them, Yudiv Borisovna who I interviewed for Night of Stone, was already 90 the first time I met her. And she wanted to look, me to look at pictures, photographs of her as a young girl when she was stunningly beautiful. And here was this very elderly person who asked me to sit on her bed while she sat on what looked like a very lumpy sofa under the window of the room. And those were the only two pieces of furniture in that room. Well, later when she went to get me a cup of tea, I saw what the lumpy piece of furniture was. It was a pile of potatoes with a cover over it, which was her store for the winter. It's no good me saying, you know, I could have given her $50. I could have changed her life. She needed to talk. It was her gift to me. And the only way to deal with that is to accept it. Secondly, an elderly tailor I interviewed in St. Petersburg. I turned up with my shoe butt on. One of the buttons was off, not surprisingly, the way you live in Russia. And the first thing he did was say, I'm a tailor. I'm going to mend your coat. But we nonetheless had a very interesting conversation about anti-Semitism. <laughs> <laughs> people, however, will accept your invitation to be interviewed for very odd reasons. I interviewed a war veteran who was a nurse during the Second World War. And for the whole time of our interview, she sat in an armchair with her hands gripping the arms of the chair white knuckles and lied i know she lied because she said there was never a shortage of bandages nobody was ever frightened nobody ever ran away it was all fine our soldiers were brave and our nurses and doctors were terribly well trained and she carried on and on like this for two hours at the end of which i said because i thought you know i really do have to say this why did you accept my invitation to come here if you couldn't tell me anything that was real about the war because you and I both know that that story simply isn't real. And she said, I've had a new parquet floor laid, and I really wanted a foreigner to see it. Isn't it nice? (laughs) 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 So (laughs) let's get back to questions of technique. And again, of course, I just gave her a hug. and That was the end of that protection of human subjects we all have to sign a form about this now most universities have committees that will look at proposals that involve dealing with people who are alive especially if you're going to be dealing with sensitive things like memories of trauma now I'm not in the university where I work so I can tell you that an awful lot of this is rubbish Asking Russians to sign a paper agreeing to be interviewed is actually more traumatic for them in many cases than doing this orally. Of course you must be clear about what you're doing, and we'll come on to that in a minute. And of course you must be extremely careful about their rights in this interchange. But a lot of people are actually upset by being asked to sign forms. It really troubles them. They wonder what you're going to do with that form. Don't forget what people had to sign back in the 1930s, 1940s. This is not an easy thing for people to accept. So what you have to do is to be careful and ethical. Of course, do what your university asks you to do, but to do it within the parameters that are fair and right for Russians. I would suggest that you have a written explanation of what you're doing in Russian on a sheet of paper that you can give them at some point, preferably before you actually go to interview them. So they've got time to think about it, show somebody else, and have a really good think about what it is you're asking them to do. That sheet should say who you are, what you're trying to do, and what they're going to be asked to do. It should also give a contact telephone number. Email often doesn't work for very elderly people. They don't have computers. But of course, you can put your email on there if you want to. And you need to give them time to say no, and the opportunity to say no at any stage during the course of the interview, and to say, look, I'm sorry, but I just don't want you to use this interview. That is fair enough. What I don't do myself is give them the right to change the tape. As far as I'm concerned, you can say what you like. You can ring me up later and say, You know, I didn't want to say that and I won't use it. But you can't keep altering it over time. You can't keep editing it because if it's oral history, it's not about fact, it's about what they say and the way they say it. Of course, you can throw the tape away if that's what they ask you to do. Okay, how do you collect this information and deal with it? You have to consider the question of anonymity. Most Organisations, including most organizations and universities here, will tell you to anonymize the information you collect. And I think that is absolutely correct because people shouldn't be held up either for ridicule or for memory in, in books that are published here. However, there are occasions when a Russian will actually say to you, publish my name, I want you to. That's happened to me quite a lot. As one woman said, the secret police have been following me all my life. Why shouldn't I have my moment in your book? And I had to put her name in And I've done that with several people. Okay, next, checking the facts against the archives. It's a very good idea to do that, but do remember that you're not awarding points for accuracy to these people. You're actually doing something different. The memories you're hearing are not facts, but structures, ways of thinking, ways of forgetting, things left out and things included. Sometimes, when you get a genuine misremembering, it's as interesting as when you get uh, a memory that confirms what you've read in the archives. For instance, if people simply can't remember humor at the front line, as I found over and over again, that is very interesting as an insight into what was going on during the war, though it doesn't help Jonathan with his project. It's not a mistake. It's evidence. And the temptation always is to say, well, I didn't get anything useful there, and to leave that. But in the case of things that people don't put in, remember that that can actually be as useful as what they do. How many interviews? How many applications have I read that say 200, 300, however many? In reality, you're not going to do as many as you think you're going to do, because they are enormously time consuming. And I think it's something we could discuss. I think it's better to go back to the same people several times and build a relationship with them than to aim, because I've said in my proposal that I'm going to do 200, to do 200 thin, unsatisfactory interviews. But that probably depends on what you're doing. To transcribe or not to transcribe, that again is up to you. Um, I transcribed about half the interviews I took, and the other ones, what I always do, is make a note in a notebook immediately after the interview. So the chances are, sitting on the metro, going back the three hours back to wherever I was staying, I would actually write up what I'd learned. And that was more use often than a formal transcription. It certainly helped me to realize, you know, that was interesting, that was not interesting, this is what we talked about. And then to go back to that record, having transcribed the interview was also interesting. Just show me what struck me at the time and what was actually said just teaches me what I didn't hear and what I didn't think about. Okay, now you're done and it's time to come home. And I gather yesterday you all said that you have a marvelous sense of achievement when you're finished working in Russia. You certainly do. And if you do this kind of work, you'll also have a marvelous sense of interaction with some of the warmest and most generous people you will ever meet, it will change you. It's important to remember that, that's good. Um, but when you get back, you're back in the English speaking world, having been in Russia, and it's a shock. That's probably one of the reasons Alexandra isn't here, she's just come back from St. Petersburg. And you'll be put under pressure again by the likes of my psychoanalyst from Yale to put your material back into the shape that is expected of it by the English speaking historical profession. I urge you, please don't. If you found something that's different, that is what you found, and that's what's exciting. It may be a bit shocking, it's difficult, and it may mean that you have to be very confident in what you found. But just let me give you an example. Because when I was working on trauma for Night of Stone, I did not find a society suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, and I didn't find people sitting up all night, remembering the Gulag and gibbering to themselves. That's what I had to put in my book. Now, you'd have thought I was reasonably grown up enough to be able to do that. But two editors, actually, at the publishing house that was going to publish that book, sent that chapter back and said, this can't be right. You have to fight for what you found out, because you're the person who's been there. And the people who are here haven't had that experience and don't know. So, in the end, what would I say? Even if you're not working on something that involves oral history, I would say try it. Go and talk to somebody. It's the most amazing experience a historian of Russia can have, and I think it gives us something that all those people who work in comfortable offices and in the public record office and all those nice places can't have. So I hope you'll try.